Good morning, everyone. My name is Chris, and I am a pastor here at River City. And so we are in our, I think, our fourth week of the book of Ephesians. Uh, we went through chapter one for the first two weeks, and then Brad walked us through the first half of this chapter for this week. So with that, we'll dive in. Um, there probably isn't a bigger stage in all of the world, at least in terms of sports, other than the Olympic Games. And in 2012, the London Olympic Games, the Vietnamese shooter, his name is Olympic shooter, Vin Swan Huang, made his Olympic debut. And it had sort of been chance that led him down this path in 1999 when Vin, then 25, was a military officer who made a name for himself as an expert marksman. A year later in 2001, he won his first national gold medal and broke the national record in the process. And he became a Southeast Asian Games champion. And then from then on, Vin continued to rise in the world of shooting. But in the end, it was not to be his in his Olympic debut in London. He finished ninth in the qualifying round for the 10-meter air pistol, failing to make the cut by a solitary point. And then he had to settle for the fourth spot, in the 50-meter pistol final after missing a podium place by a tenth of a point. And it would have been easy for Vin at this point to just give up or have been discouraged by coming so close, by falling so short on a big stage. Instead, over the next four years, he trained and he worked hard, overcoming any mental demons that haunted him. And over the next four years, Vin went on to climb to the summit of the shooting world winning gold in the Asian Air Gun Champions, Championships and finishing first in the International Shooting Sport Federation World Cup, all while setting records everywhere he went. All this meant that by the time the Olympic Games came around again, this time in Rio de Janeiro, Vin entered the tournament as a legitimate medal prospect, pitted in an enthralling duel against local favorite Felipe Almeida Wu, which naturally meant Vin was up against a home crowd. Vin was trailing by two-tenths of a point as they entered the final shot. Wu shot first, scored a 10.1. Moments later, Vin replied with a 10.7 to snatch first place and in the process became the first Olympic gold medalist in Vietnam's history. But Vin wasn't finished there. Three days later, he finished second in the 50-meter pistol event to write another page in the history books as the first Vietnamese person to win two medals in the history of the Games. I remember when this news came out, I was in California. And uh, at that time, I, my grandparents lived in California. And I went to ask my grandpa, who was born and raised in Vietnam. He's lived over half his life now in the US, but he moved to the US in 1979 as a refugee. And if it wasn't for the Vietnam War and the subsequent rise in communism that forced him and his family to leave his country, he probably would have never left. But to this day, and this point having lived, like I said, over half his life in the U.S., he still continues to listen to Vietnamese radio on his iPad, and he reads Vietnamese newspapers. So anyways, I, I asked my grandpa, aren't you excited that Vietnam won its first gold medal? And he replied, yeah. And now China knows they can't mess with us. As if one pistol shooter could take down a country of over 1.4 billion people. 
Okay, so taking a step back, in, in this one of the greatest moments in all of Vietnamese history, this small war-torn country wins a gold medal. And on the biggest stage, and my grandpa's first thought is on the racial tensions that existed between Vietnam and China. We don't need to do a deep dive into this complicated relationship of these two countries, but we need to note that tensions between people groups can cause lasting scars. Wounds so deep that even in this moment of national pride in his home country, my grandpa's first thoughts were on the hurt that China had caused Vietnam over the years. So with that, let's open up to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to be going through verses 11 through 22. And, and once you're there, and we're going to read this together, you're going to see, I think, the weight of what we're going to talk about this morning. What's great and terrifying sometimes about the Word of God is that it, it doesn't just speak life into some ethereal way or just some spiritual sense, but it confronts us, it shapes us, and it sanctifies us. When you think about where we are just in terms of human history, and we look at God's plan from the beginning, he is creating a people that live in such a way that his glory and his moral beauty become visible to the world. God is at work at creating a people, not just one single person, but a people. And in his creation of that people, the glory of God and the moral beauty of God becomes visible in such a way that if you read the Old Testament, then you would see that nations are naturally drawn into the kingdom of God. So that's sort of the theme and the idea from day one that not just your personal salvation is important to God, although that's a piece of it, but rather that God would form a community that makes his Wisdom apparent. So you and I, the church, in any given location, we can reveal the glory and wisdom to everyone who sees us. This is where it gets tough, though. That's a really hard plan to accomplish through imperfect and broken people. And here's where our passage is going this morning. I think there's, there's been such a heavy emphasis on the vertical proclamation of the truth of God's interaction with this world and our salvation story that we can lose sight of any application beyond salvation. Don't get me wrong. When we read this passage, you're going to see that this morning is heavily about the availability of salvation. But if that's all you see, you lose sight of the implications outside of that. So with that, let's read Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and express and regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. Okay, there's a lot going on in this passage. And if we were to do any sort of study on the ancient world, then we would see that the issues that we have going on today in our own country are not anything new or never before seen. The Jews saw the Gentiles as unholy dogs, and God in his infinite wisdom had chosen the Jews to be his people. So God gave them his law and his word and his prophets and his blessings, not as an end in itself, but as a means to an end. So that they, having known the true God as revealed himself to them, could then declare him to the world. They were chosen as a missionary nation. But as we know, they, rather than being compassionate towards the nations around them, they were hateful and hostile. And through the centuries, Jews and Gentiles hated each other. And it went both ways because the Jews rejected the Gentiles and the Gentiles reciprocated and rejected the Jews. And so now Paul has this problem on his hands because since the day of Pentecost, if you can remember, there were 3,000 Jews who were converted to Christ. And then it says a few days later, 5,000 more men were converted and so we probably have 20 to 25,000 total people who established a church, and none of them were Gentiles. And this would have fit the Jewish expectation that when the Messiah came and brought salvation, it would come to the Jews and not the Gentiles. And he would elevate the Jews to a place of prominence in the world. And he would destroy all the blasphemers and Gentiles. But that's not what happens. And in fact, the author of this letter, Paul, who was formerly Saul, persecuted Christians, Jewish Christians, in fact. But God saves him on the Damascus Road and calls him to take the gospel to, of all people to the Gentiles. And so he goes to the Gentiles. And where he goes, the gospel goes. And where the gospel goes, it saves Gentiles. Okay, picking up now in verse 11, it says, For Gentiles to remember that you were once called uncircumcised by the circumcised. So this divide between Jew and Gentile was both cultural and spiritual. It was cultural because there were lots of ceremonies and practices like circumcision and dietary regulations that the Jews were commanded to follow. All of these practices were designed to separate Jews apart from other nations to make clear the radical holiness of God. And at the same time, all of these practices were a way to alienate the Gentiles from God. And so if we look at verse 12, this divide is more than just cultural. Verse 12 describes a five-fold alienation for the Gentiles. They were Christless, making them aliens to Christ. They were stateless, no citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God. What does that mean? It means that the Jews had had the covenant given to them by Moses and the covenant given to them by David. They had been given a new covenant that came, to, that came through the prophets, a covenant of salvation. God had made amazing promises to Israel, promises that they would be in the land someday, promises of national salvation, promises of a kingdom, and all the elements and features of that kingdom are laid out by the prophets. 
Gentiles had none of that. No savior, no special favor as a nation, and no promises from God. And so verses 11 and 12 describe this alienation for the Gentile. But verse 13 makes a huge change. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Far away was how the Gentiles referred to the temple because the temple was in Jerusalem where the Jews were. So Paul says to them, there's no more room for hostility towards Jews, even though they persecuted you or even though they were hostile towards you in the past because you have now been brought near. In verse 14, for he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. There's nothing to separate us anymore. And by the way, the, the Jewish temple was literally a place of separation. There was a court for the Gentiles and a court for the women. Then there was a court for the priests. And then there was an inner court where the sacrifices were made. And then there was the holy place. And then there was the holiest of holy places. And everything was literally separated by barriers. And the only place that Gentiles could go was into the court of the Gentiles on the far perimeter of the outside. And for a Gentile to get any closer was serious business. Like, man, if you and your neighbor had like an eight-foot privacy fence with some barbed wire and a sign that was like, stay out, that's some real conflict. But like, this is even more intense than that. And now Paul is arguing that in Christ and namely the death of Christ and the shedding of his blood, that the dividing wall of hostility has fallen down and now all spaces for all ethnicities are welcome. Last part of verse 14 and all of 15 in his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. This verse is a little bit hard to understand, but it just meant that culturally, the Gentiles did not have to be Jews in order to be Christians. Like, this is an extremely tense moment in, in human history. As a Jew, you were taught your entire life that you were superior and God chose you as his people. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on Gentiles. And so now we have two groups of people who have been taught to hate each other their whole lives, and now they're doing church together. I mean, you think our moment is difficult right now? This is brutal. And so Paul's trying to communicate to both Jew and Gentile that the hostility that these two groups of people had for one another died with Jesus. I mean, imagine the Jews are really upset about this and they're complaining. Hey, they're not washing like they're supposed to. They're not eating like they're supposed to. And they're not celebrating their rituals like they're supposed to. And Paul's like, relax, everyone. Christ abolished all of that. And he fulfilled all of that. And it's Christ that brings that about now. It's, it's him. And, and more than that, look where we're going next in the second half of this verse. He abolished the law commandments and regulations. And he is creating in himself, in Christ, one new man in the place of two. That's how Christ makes peace. He takes two and he makes one new man and woman. So... Now, as a follower of Christ, I have more in common with someone born in another country who is a Christian than I do with an American who doesn't know and love Jesus. And I have more in common with an African-American, a Latino, a white person who knows Jesus than I do with any person who shares my ethnicity. That's what Christ brought about. He made us one new man. 
And now that doesn't mean we don't have different cultures that need to be celebrated and understood and looked into. That's the beautiful part of the kingdom. It takes all of us to reflect the beauty of God. Here's the thing. God is up to something in every part of the world, in every race. Does Jesus dwell and abide in an all-white church? Of course, absolutely. Does he abide in an all-Latino, Asian, or black church? Yes and amen. But what happens is that we can miss out on God's full delight in humanity when we only exist in homogenous spaces. And that doesn't just apply to where you go to church. It's your job. It's where you live, your friends, and your family. Is it the worst thing ever to be in a homogenous space? Absolutely not. God just wants something more from us if it's possible. Sometimes when we talk about this stuff, there's just some nonsensical stuff that gets said. Like, I'm sure there are an endless amount of things that I don't understand or I can't see because I grew up differently than you or anyone else for that matter. But that doesn't make you any less of my brother or sister in Christ. And I know I definitely have certain things about myself that you probably don't understand either, but it's all good. It's all okay because the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down and you and I, we're family, whether you like it or not. And as much as the world wants the people of God to divide over any sort of issue, you and I have to refuse. And even if somebody says, some, if somebody says something difficult or even outside of scripture, bear with me now, it's not a problem because we can disagree on stuff all the time. But I'm not talking about blind empathy where you just agree and you nod your head no matter what is said, but I'm talking about informed compassion, okay? Those two aren't the same thing. And so let's, let's look at verse 18. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Okay, here's the thing. There isn't some Asian Holy Spirit. There's not a white Holy Spirit. There's not a black Holy Spirit or even a Latino Holy Spirit. There is one Holy Spirit who is giving all of us access. So verse 19, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. You're my family. You're one kingdom, one race. Verse 20 and 21. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Get your pens out or, or whatever you use to underline stuff in your Bible and mark the word grows. This implies an ongoing action, and we're not there yet, but God is at work. So then when we look at ethnic harmony, as this passage outlines, we're talking about progressive sanctification. And it's not a one-time event, like, boom, I'm sanctified. But it's progressive. In every direction, progressive sanctification is God growing us into a holy temple. So then in verse 22, it says, In him you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. We all have access to the same Spirit. We are fellow citizens with the saints everywhere. We share in the same foundation. And what is most true about me and you, if you're a believer in Christ, is that we are followers of Jesus first. I'm not defined by my cultural practices or what I find meaningful outside of Christ. What gives us unity as a church and what brings us all together is the blood of Jesus. It's our foundation. And that's what we have to build on. And it's not that there aren't issues because sanctification is messy and sometimes it's painstakingly slow. So let me try to wrap this 
passage up in a way that's going to be helpful for us to talk about something else. But the point is that God aims to create one new people in Christ who are reconciled to each other across racial lines. Not strangers, not aliens, not enmity, not far away, fellow citizens in the city of God. One temple for God to dwell in. And he did that at the cost of his son's life. We love to talk about reconciliation with God through death of his son, and well, we should. But let's also think about this, that God ordained the death of his son to reconcile alien people groups to each other in one body in Christ. This, too, was the design of the death of Christ. I mean, really think about this. Christ died so that it would take away enmity and anger and disgust and jealousy and self-pity and fear and envy and hatred and malice and any indifference away from your heart toward all other persons who are in Christ by faith. So what do we do? And what we're going to talk through next is hard because we're going to talk about reconciliation. And here's the difficulty with talking about race or any issue regarding reconciliation. We want to have every conversation all at the same time. Race, racism, reconciliation, unity, all these things are broad topics. And they often cause us to bring up politics, housing, education, economics, and every other aspect of life. When these conversations come up, our first instinct is to be defensive about our own experiences and to proclaim that we don't have the answers. So let's just set some ground rules. First and foremost, when we talk about reconciliation, we're talking about creational unity first, not national unity. As we just read, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been separated, and that barrier included cultural markers like circumcision. But it also included a sinful inter-ethnic hostility that resulted partly from legal legalistic applications of the law. So as Paul uses phrases in this passage that we just read, like dividing wall of hostility, and he uses words like reconcile and peace, all of this language points to a resolution of conflict that is further than just the indication of a mere transition in covenants. Stay with me now, okay? Really, we got to lock in, okay? Where, what former state of harmony are we going back to? Here's the key. The biblical historical reference point for reconciliation is not a point in U.S. history, but began with the birth of Adam in the garden, okay? When we use this term in the church, our hope for reconciliation harkens back to our creational unity. So my hope in using this term isn't to scare you, to shame you, or even guilt you. And it reminds us that we aren't supposed to to be what we're supposed to be, but we will be one day. And it reminds us that Christ, our reconciler, has already purchased with his blood every spiritual resource needed to make us increasingly united day by day. Reconciliation grounds us in a story of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, something that's much bigger than ourselves. So creational unity is our point of reconciliation. But now we have to try and attempt to contextualize and, and bring it into our culture today, okay? And, and one of the concerns uh, that we have with talking about reconciliation, especially in the U.S., is that we have embraced a political mindset regarding this topic. 
a political mindset that views issues of race and ethnicity as primarily or exclusively a social problem that for the most part was solved through the political process in the mid to late 1960s. So now consequently, race shouldn't be a problem. And, and now even if we focus on race, even in discussing it, works against the unity we've achieved and highlights make-believe divisions. This is untrue. When we embrace the political mindset, it can lead us to place the temporary country of America over the eternal kingdom of God concerning the critical work of gospel-focused ethnic unity. Instead of going about the work of pursuing unity across ethnic lines within Christ church, we take pride in the efforts of this country has made to achieve a colorblind society. And in so doing so, absolve ourselves of the responsibility to engage with people who do not look like us and do not think like us. Maintaining this political mindset damages our witness by actually preventing us from talking about race and ethnicity. I get it, man. I really, really get this. You're tired of this conversation. I can't count how many times I've heard that we should just be done with this conversation because it only divides and it never unifies. To be honest, that's similar to saying don't talk about smoking because we all know that it leads to cancer. And I realize that discussing race and ethnicity is difficult and it's so uncomfortable. For many of us, it feels like walking in a minefield with a blindfold on. But it's an issue that the church must step into, we must be aware of, and we must do it with as much grace as possible. We're never going to be perfect. And finally, thinking politically robs us of the opportunity to show genuine care and concern and love for our community. Thinking politically discounts our reality by focusing on the bottom line. Thinking politically leads us to embrace American values over biblical values. So if thinking politically gets us in trouble, then what should we do? There's a way that many of us know, and we even preach about it regularly, and that is the way of the cross. It's the path where we willingly lay down at the foot of the cross and we bring everything to Jesus. Wherever you are in thinking about this topic, we bring it to Jesus. And while this is easy to say, it's difficult to implement. The first step, if, if you're comfortable, is to listen to voices outside of our closed circles, to those who have had experiences far different from ours. Read, listen to the stories of others, and look into the parts of history that you're not super familiar with or understand. And here's where we're getting at with this. Would you just commit to knowing what is meaningful to other people? This doesn't mean that you have to necessarily enjoy it, what someone else finds meaningful, but will you just learn about it and understand it? I think as a people of God, we have somehow completely lost the ability to empathize and healthily disagree. You don't have to be passionate or even enjoy what everyone else does. But here's the thing. If you don't like something, then you have the option to not be divisive about it. I'm going to give a, must, a much less loaded example and let the Holy Spirit take you where he's going to take you. But recently, I, I bought a Traeger. And uh, Traeger is a grill, if you didn't know. And uh, I joined this uh, Traeger Facebook group because I'm old. And uh, without fail, every day, someone will post a picture of a steak. Okay, and uh, once they cut into that steak, it doesn't matter like what cook it is, right? Every day without fail, okay, 
the comments, because we only live in a world of comments, the comments that ensue are just pure chaos, okay? There are so many people who think they own a monopoly on how a steak should be enjoyed. It has to be this temperature, this color, this searing method. Relax. Can we just enjoy steak differently? We don't all have to enjoy something the exact same way, but we can be united in our enjoyment of steak. And if you're vegan or vegetarian, I'm really sorry, okay? Anyway, so after committing to knowing something meaningful about someone else, next, pray with urgency and understanding. Take what you've learned about someone else and sit with God in quiet. Let the stories from books or other people's mouths penetrate your mind and your heart. And if you feel so inclined, then ask God that he would help to grow your heart and care for others. Then receive what we have in Christ, grace. We have grace that forges our wills to move away from the past and move towards people in love. Genuine grace from God will empower us not to shy away from difficulty. It's a grace that's okay with discomfort because it knows that in that space, new habits and attitudes are being formed. And lastly, hope. Hope comes not from immediate success, but from confidence that this call to reconciliation and peace is from the one true God who bends the course of the universe toward love. And our constant state of reality for the believer is the already, but not yet. Each day we are being renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So our hope isn't in trying to figure it all out at once, but we move in hope day by day. Listen, I know at the end of the day, talk by itself is not going to solve all our problems. But my hope for our church is that we would just be better, better reconcilers, better friends, and better Christians. Let's pray. God, I thank you for mercy and grace. You're kind and good. And I thank you that you've made my family bigger than I could have ever dreamed. And that you've given me brothers and sisters with such varying backgrounds and values. And you're making us one, growing into that thing together. Thank you. I praise you for that, God. God, thank you that no matter who we are, where we're from, what we've done, we are your people and we're not aliens or strangers to you. There are a billion things that are pulling at us right now, trying to divide us and things that break your heart. Let us instead rejoice that you brought down the dividing wall of hostility and you created in us a new person. Amen. We come together weekly to celebrate the sacrament of communion as believers. And here at River City, we believe the Lord's Supper is an act reserved for that family. So if you're unsure of where you're at with Jesus, we just ask you to let these pieces pass by and invite you instead to take a moment to reflect on Jesus.